0: En een hartelike goeiemorgen, daar kom by ons program Skrifteerlik, waar ons wekelijk saam na oplossing soek uit die skrifte, vervra waarmee gewone mense sikkel. Die Bijbel sê in Johannes 17, 17, woord is waarheid, heilig hulle na die woord, en pasal om sê, woord is een lamp van my voete en een licht voor my pad. Kom dan saam met ons vir die volgende uur, wanneer ons geen steen onaangeraag laat om die waarheid te vind en licht te schyn op die vraag uit die skrifte waarmee ek en jy moent ek ek kan worstel nie. Krijg dus gauw jou Bijbel en kom onderzoek saam met ons die skrifte. Dis moes nou skrifteerlik. Real Radio for Real People Serving a Real God Tune in to Radio Pulpit 657 AM Download our app en listen on RadioPulpit.co.za. This met opgewondenheid. en ons harten wat we sien. op morgen, jiri. In een twintigste november, dinsdagmorgen, jaarvandag hier twintig drieëntwintig zeven minuten uur elf. Dus schriftelijk tot en met twaalf vier verdag van. Samen met jou, dear, die voort van die heren Stui Delf onderzoek graven op zoek naar antwoorden op dagelijkse vraag. Waarom is normale as- mensen zo ziek en jij dan te doen het? So, dit werk zo so, als jij. Danke vraag het hy die skrifte uit, dan stuur hy vir ons een WhatsApp 082657 082652729 uh, Kan ek vir jou vraag, één vraag per luisteraar, skryp het ek hier, so, 3, 4, en baie dankie vir jou enthousiasme, daarmee wil ek jou nie afschiet nie, maar uh, stuur vir ons so 1 vraagie in, dit is altyd lekker om te hoor van jou, en jou raak te sien. So, die nummer is 082657. And you're more than welcome to post your questions. Send it through to us here at Scriptural. And then can I ask you, before I greet him, can you pray for Pastor Rocky Stevenson if you're just listening to the program this morning? The majority of people taking part in this program is not interested in man's opinion. They want to know what is God's heart with regards to this? God's opinion. Therefore, we call it scriptural, because God's word, the blueprint for happy living, you will find an answer for every conceivable problem that you might face on this earth, you will find the answer in God's word. So, by that, om um, um, dan jou vraag vir ons deur te stuur, maar bid ook vir Rocky vir ons hier in die atelier, dat wat ons vir jou gee, dan skrifsel wees, woord, and then one last remark. Remember, there's a responsibility with listening to a program like this. Moen nie net ons word for opeet nie, gaan und sok Act seventeen eleven says To search the scriptures, to see indeed, if these things are so. So, baie dankie, die nommer dan, as jy vraag jy wil instuur, baie welkom om jou vraag vir ons te stuur na 026572729. That being said and done. Pastor Rocky Stevenson, good morning to you. Welcome to Radio Pulpit Studios once again. Morning,
1: Ben So good to be here. What a privilege.
0: Thank you so much. And uh, if you want to meet the man face-to-face, you can go to our YouTube channel right now, or you can go to Facebook. We live streaming on Facebook. We live on air as we speak. There I hit the button. And we're starting right now on Facebook live and on YouTube. The Ready Puppet channel on YouTube, you can go there live as well. Rudolph Caleb uh, mm-hmm. had for a question, he said he had a question about Matthew 24 and 1 and 2. Rocky, would you do the honors? Matthew 24 and verse 1 and 2.
1: Yes, um, so that passage says the... And coming out from the temple, Jesus was going along and his disciples came up up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, do, do you not see these all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. So part of the question really is on what does this mean? Is this talking about church buildings being uh, no longer necessary. Is Jesus saying that no building is going to be something that should be part of it? What Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24 and verse 1 to 2 indeed predicts the destruction of the physical temple in Jerusalem, and that event took place in around AD 70, and today as well, even if you go to Jerusalem, you'll go to uh, what has been actually dug up, the the weeping wall, in a sense, and They have the idea that this was now, you know, and you have the dome of the rock on the temple mount and you don't have the physical temple. Since 70 AD, when the Romans destroyed the temple, you haven't had the rebuilding of the temple. And so this was part of Jesus' prediction and also opened up to the the time of the Gentiles or the new covenant period. And so you have this crucial moment in history that Jesus was prophesying about. Now, specifically in the question, there's really a potential confusion in regard to the physical church buildings compared to the temple in the Old Testament. And sometimes we get confused with what we read in the Old Testament, and we, there's, there's much confusion in regard to something called replacement theology, where some people think today's church buildings are meant to be like what the temple was in the Old Testament. And um, for us to think a little bit about this, in the New Testament, in this period of grace, the, the New Testament teaches that the individual believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we see that in First Corinthians 6, where Paul is actually talking about how the church should not be involved in sexual immorality. And he says this in First Corinthians 6, verse 19 to 20. He says, Or you, do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, so in the Old Testament, you would have a physical temple that you would go to, and the the people of Israel were meant to be a theocracy. But now, the people of God, the Church, are what we can call a christocracy. We are a people that are governed by our Lord Jesus Christ Christ He becomes enough. exactly he becomes our Saviour and our Lord, and what Jesus says, we do, and Jesus said, "If you love me, you will obey me, mm. and we become actually the temple of God. We are living, breathing, walking temples of God, and we are to be that living sacrifice that is pleasing to him, as the Word of God teaches. And therefore, we are to treat our bodies in such a way that God is honored, because the Holy Spirit abides in all those that have called upon the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation. And the new covenant, as as believers, we are actually living stones. And that's another imagery that the New Testament actually gives us. We are being built up into a spiritual house. So that temple of what Jesus was speaking about was broken down. And, and no stone was left on another. But the New Testament believer is like or likened to a living stone in First Peter 2 verse 5. We see this. Uh, God uh, God says this by his inspiration. He says, you also are living stones, mm. are being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ and that's an interesting phrase because we are being built up that is where we get the same root word of edification where Paul has that whole debate in Roman uh, sorry in 1 Corinthians 13 that section on love it's in the it's actually a rebuke to the Corinthian church because they were having all these arguments about who was most gifted and who was not that gifted and he said if if you have love you will build one one another up. And so, we being the individual temples of the Holy Spirit are also actually a collective body of believers that are built up on the foundation of that cornerstone of Jesus, and we're meant to be for the building of one another up. We're meant to be a house for a holy priesthood as a collective body. And that collective body assembles together underneath the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what the metaphor actually starts to draw us towards. We are, as the church, not confined to a physical building, but we, we are, as individual believers, contributing to that spiritual building of Almost the a building of Christ. It is, It's a metaphor that's a beautiful one. And yeah. the cornerstone of that spiritual building is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. But that doesn't say that we shouldn't have a local congregations. The whole New Testament was written to local congregations. If you go through all the letters of Paul, if you go through all of the purposes of God, there is that local, um, let's say the local church Now, you can be a part of a local church while not being part of a universal church, and I've made this point before on radio pulpits, but you can't be part of the universal church without a commitment to the local church. What I mean by that is that you can have somebody that actually isn't really a true believer that is part of a local church, and everybody looks at the person, they talk a bit of Christianese, everybody thinks that they're part of the church, but they're actually not really part of the church. But you can't have somebody that's truly part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ universal as one that's indwelt by the Holy Spirit because they've called upon the Lord Jesus Christ without a commitment to the local church of the Lord Jesus. If you're in an area where there is no local church, then you should be committed to helping get a local church there. But if you're in an area like what we have here in Pretoria or where I am in Benoni, there are so many local churches that one should desire to be a part of because you're a believer. Now, when we speak about this, and even the idea of a physical structure for corporate worship, that's not inherently wrong. And, and Matthew twenty-four is not speaking about destroying the physical structures of church buildings, but the cornerstone of this, of the of the church itself, the the universal church, the individuals must be the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's also essential to emphasize um, that that the that the church buildings are not. The church in the New Testament sense, many people think that that building is the church. No, not at all. Not according to the New Testament. It's the people that are the church of the Lord Jesus. And so the church is the assembly of believers committed to the preaching of the word the singing of the word the praying of the word the observance of the ordinances that is of the lord's supper and of baptism and the practicing of church discipline underneath a leadership that qualifies according to what we see in timothy to be leaders as far as overseer and deacons and so this is what we see as the church in the new testament
0: right uh, rudolph caleb hope that answers it for you beautifully and a beautiful metaphor there and just something else, a prophecy uh, in fulfillment to the T. Jesus says it, the Bible says it, and it happened exactly like that. The uh, privilege that I had to be in Israel and see the temple totally and utterly destroyed. And we know how many temples we'll build, but that they literally removed stones, one from the other, to get the melted gold out. And, uh Wow. It is prophecy and fulfilling. God's word is just absolutely beautiful. I promised that I would give you the telephone number uh, over and over throughout the program 082-657-2729. Matthijs, daar uit uh, prachtige Ammam Zintootie, stierf ons hierdie ene, uh, Romeine 1314, hy sê, morgen boetas, nou ja, Thysie, ons groet vir jou ook, en hoop het gaan goed met Mariaan daar. Bekleer jou met Christus. Romans 13:14 Put on a Christ. And then say is hierdie 'n oproep tot heiligmaking der die geloviges? Is dit die oproep tot heiligmaking? Is this a call to sanctification by the believer? What does scripture teach us? What does Romans 13:14 actually mean? How do you understand it? Yes,
1: yeah, the the apostle Paul they exhorts believers in Romans 13:14 says but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is in the continual sense. So indeed, um, you're writing in seeing this taste as a call towards sanctification or a call towards what we would call holiness. And that is what we see with regard to sanctification. Now, within the scriptures, we also recognize that sanctification has two major elements. You can either see sanctification as positional, and progressive, and you see both of these elements, is when you are born again, you do put on Christ. You actually do put to death the flesh. You do renew the spirit of the mind. There's a salvation element to that, and there's a positional sanctification where when God looks at us, he sees the finished work of Jesus. And you can kind of think of this like a table with a tablecloth. That sanctification is like the tablecloth covering the table. And when God looks at the table, he sees that tablecloth. He sees Christ. He no longer sees your sin. There's that imputed righteousness as such. And you receive then the righteousness of Jesus and he has taken your sin curse on himself. And so that's that positional sanctification, that imputed element. But then there's also the imparted righteousness, and that's what we would call the the progressive sanctification, where day by day we become more like Jesus. A dying to self. And a dying to self. And there's actually that, that call is a die to self and put off, renew the spirit of your mind, and put on. The, the Christ, and that's what we see in this passage is that the Apostle Paul is calling us towards that that vigorous desire to be more and more like Jesus, putting on. And it carries that idea of that deliberate action. What deliberate deliberate action are you putting on? Like when we get up in the mornings. I mean, you go uh, in the morning. You've been in your pajamas or whatever it is, and <laughs> you don't come to radio pulpit dressed in your pajamas. You get dressed. You put on clothes. That's this daily element of that putting on Christ. And when you think about it like that, it it helps us to visualize that massive concept of this progressive sanctification. Are we putting on Jesus today? Because that's what we should be dressed with. When people look at us, they ought to see Jesus. And that's this imagery of us being heralds and even being ambassadors. I mean, it's what a sad reality to to hear that um, Israel has now recalled its ambassadors to South Africa. Those ambassadors are going back home. That's their home country. And when they were here, they represented Israel. For the Christian, you represent Christ. You're to be dressed like Christ. You're to talk like Christ. you to think like Christ. You're to put on beautiful, Christ. Beautiful. And that's this idea of this ambassadary type of a role that we have. And there's a call, a desperate call there in God's word towards holiness. And and I do think that we have lost this so often because there's this idea in modern Christianity of, well, just come to Jesus as you are and then stay as you are. And that's not that's not what we see in it's God's word biblical. at all. That's yeah. not biblical at all. And so, indeed, this is a call towards that in the broader context of Romans 13 actually emphasizes the Christian's responsibility to live in obedience to God's commands and to love one another. Therefore, this putting on Christ involves not only personal holiness, but it actually also means living out the love of, and the righteousness of Christ in our relationships and in our actions. So that's a bit of the broader context to this. If you're trying to think about what is he actually talking about, he's not He's not talking about being a monk somewhere with putting on Christ. He's actually talking about our obedience and our love towards one another in the context of a body of believers. And I think that kind of... Um, fits well with our previous question because we, to be part of an assembled body of believers, though we are the church when we are born again, positionally, part of the sanctification is actually being the church. And I think that's a helpful way to think about it because some people get confused. They think, well, I'm born again, so I'm part of the church. But when you're part of the church, there is this imputed um, or imparted righteousness that you must be putting on day by day, and you must live out the one another passages in the New Testament, and that is the very practical essence of sanctification.
0: So, can I ask you, Isaiah one eighteen, where the Lord says, "Let us reason together. Come as you are, ball and chain, right now. He'll meet you at your darkest spot, and but he won't leave you there. Yep. Uh, he'll change your heart, and he won't you because it's a it's a a putting off of the, the old man, a putting on and on the, of the new. I love the metaphor where you use it as an ambassador. Yeah. Christ, uh, we're ambassadors for Christ in this world, and uh, thank you so much for that one. Matej Seguip, this antwort for Bye, thank you for the deal number and the program, it's nice to see you radio council. We live broadcasting on Facebook, Natasha Barnes, I see you there on Facebook, bless your heart, thank you so much. Also Janine, uh, gospel singer, says uh, walk in the spirit, not in the the Flesh, uh, Galatians 5, 16. Uh, hey, uh, Janine, see you there. And Leslie Manuel, good morning, beloved. Uh, see you there on uh, Facebook. Thank you so much for that. If you want to send in a question, as you have 082729 twee 2729 2, en dit sal lekker wees om jou raak te sien daar op die Facebook bladzij. Ek sien Francis het vir ons een voice note ingesteer. Francis, tik asjeblief jou vraag vir ons uit. Het maak net soveel makkelijker in die levendige program, want ons moet gaan luister na die voice note of het enigszins van toepassing is dan op die program. 082657 2729 uh, 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 Next up, Dorothy, bless your heart Thank you so much for this one My question is about the festival of the harvest And back we go to the Old Testament Leviticus 23, just love these Old Testament questions Leviticus 23 and verse 15 to 22 What does it entail to us who are under a new covenant? Rocky, how do we answer Dorothy with regards to this?
1: Yes, um, so this is actually, I mean, such a fascinating when we think about the Feast of the Harvest or what is called Pentecost. um, We this is one of the feasts that has been fulfilled already. There's only one of the three major feasts, because there's seven feasts, but there's three feasts that you would actually travel to Jerusalem for on a yearly basis. You would travel there for the Passover feast, and you would travel there for um, the, the, the Feast of Pentecost, which is the Feast of Weeks, and the, or the Feast, uh, the Festival of Harvest. And then you would also come once again to the Feast of Booths, and there's one out of those three that has not yet been fulfilled and will and awaits its grand fulfillment in the millennial reign of Christ. And we see that even in Zechariah 14, which, man, I'm so enjoying preaching through the book of Zechariah at the moment on our in our morning services yeah. at Benoni Bible Church. I'm, we're towards the end of chapter two. And what a Christological book. Um, let me encourage you as a listener, go and read through the book of Zechariah, second last book of the Old Testament. I don't think there's actually any book in the Old Testament that is so rich Christologically, other than probably the book of Psalms, because there's 150 chapters there and Christ is all over the book of uh, Psalms. But um, Zechariah 14, we see actually that feast of booths that comes to fruition. But this, this festival, this festival of harvest um, as known, is also known as the Feast of Weeks. Or that of Pentecost, and this festival took place fifty days after the Passover. And um, so, when you think about what happened with our Lord Jesus being crucified at um, during the the Pente- uh, sorry during uh, the um, the Passover time, uh, he he rose again three days later, and then he was with his disciples for forty days, and then he told them to wait. Um, in the city, and 10 days later, and that was around the 50 day, which was then this this time, this Pentecost time, that the Spirit of God came upon the people uh, there in the upper room. And it involves offering the first fruits of the harvest to the Lord. And even as you think about Pentecost and that first Acts 2, Pentecost, of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the disciples of Jesus and settling on them like the dove. Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. And you have that first fruit, in a sense, that now is attributed to our Lord Jesus there at Pentecost. It's the first of his people that were now born again and saved. But let's consider this as it relates to the new covenant, because that's part of what the question is asking when we think about this the thanksgiving for for us for for the that that this would take place it was very much because of the harvest now in the new covenant we don't celebrate agricultural harvest but rather the spiritual harvest and we think about when we think about Pentecost as even recorded for us in Acts 2 that occur that occurred during this festival it marks the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the believers and the spiritual harvest is the central theme then of the new testament as believers in christ we are actually in all things to give thanks and so there's no specific moment where we have a feast to give thanks but in every and all circumstances we as those that have received the holy spirit are to live with thanksgiving because god has in his mercy poured out his holy spirit on us and so there's been a fulfillment of this feast of harvest um, this pentecost feast but if we think about offering first fruits and that was very much what happened during this feast. While the old covenant actually involved offering those first fruits to the, of the land at the temple, bringing them with you, bringing it to the Lord as a gift to him. In the new covenant, believers are called to present themselves as a living sacrifice. And that's what we have in Romans 12 verse 1. We are to, and maybe it's a good thing if I would read Romans um 12 verse 1 I know that most of our listeners will probably know it off by heart but it says therefore I exhort you brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a sacrifice and this again would link with I think Teis's question last time because this is part of that sanctification journey and this is also part of that idea of putting on Christ because this is in the continual sense to present your bodies as a sacrifice living holy and pleasing to God which is your spiritual service of worship. And so for the believer, we don't wait until there's a feast like this at Pentecost to do this. We do this actually every single day. We are those that honor the Lord like this, and we dedicate our lives, we dedicate our talents, we dedicate our resources to God as an offering of gratitude for the spiritual harvest that we've received through Christ. We've received the Holy Spirit, and therefore we now give our very lives for the lord jesus but there's also the unity and the inclusivity element to this because the festival of harvest included provisions for the poor for strangers for those that were in need and that was a big element of what this um this the specific feast was as well about once a year israel would be providing for the needs of the poor for those that were strangers in their land for those that were in need and this is a reminder to the local church that we are to be a a healing balm even in the world that we are in. We are to care for the widow and the orphan. We are to be a, a, a place of refuge in that kind of a sense. And so the principles actually of this idea of this feast do play out into the new covenant, but it's not at a specific time in the year. It's all year round because of what the Lord has done for us, much like what we have with something like the Sabbath. The, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, and therefore every single day is holy unto him. And the Lord's Day is not a replacement of the Sabbath. The Lord's Day is simply the day that Jesus rose from the dead and the churches is assembled um, historically on the Lord's Day. But every single day, Jesus is our Lord, isn't he? And so there's that element even with this. But um, but also, I do think another principle that does carry out weight with regard to this feast in the New Testament is that just like the Israelites depended on God for their physical harvest, because that was the reminder of this of this feast in the New Covenant, we acknowledge our ongoing dependency on God for spiritual sustenance. In John 15 verse 5, it speaks to, to believers in the term of he is the true vine and we are the branches. And so we depend on him so that we would bear fruit. And so there's that element as well that we would carry out in regard to this Old Testament feast. So I hope that's helpful in regard to the question.
0: Thank you, Dorothy, bless your heart, baie dankie vir die interessante vraag, Leviticus 23, 15 tot 22, now for a lifestyle question and a special request to stay anonymous, ek gaan om uh, in Afrikaans lees, soos wat ek om gekry het, dit sê ek wil graag anoniem blij, my broer het echt breek gepleeg en staan op die punt om te sky, dit verstaan ek, maar hy sê, hy het vergifnis gevra, hy het repent, maar wil aanhou met die verhouding met die persoon wie hy echt breek gepleeg het. Ek het, soos ek het aan hom verstaan, het ek het aan hom probeer verduidelik en as ek verkeerd is, mag die here my vergewe vir hom gesê, ek denk nie dit sal recht wees nie, aangezien dit ook gepaard gaan met een wanperceptie. Hy sê, die Heere het vir hom gesê om te sky. Wat sal julle gedagtes hieroor wees? Rocky, I think you Afrikaans good enough yes. uh, to, what a, a real lifestyle question and may I add, something hmm. That's more prevalent nowadays. It's not just this anonymous. We see it literally around every uh, nook and cranny every corner. What do we answer?
1: Yeah, um, I, I think that you're right to be very bugged by this, what, what you have as and, and, I, and I do want to be as sensitive as I can be, but um, yeah, uh, the, the, my first response is that what your brother is doing is is absolutely sinful. It is not condoned by the scriptures at all. This is, he is not listening to the Holy Spirit. He is not listening to the Bible. Well, God wouldn't and tell him to go God, and get it. God never lies. Yeah. And God hates divorce. And God would also not condone his adulterous relationship. Um, God is against this. And there's zero repentance that I see in a question like this. Now, of course, I haven't sat down and know all the intricate details, but the reality is, is what he is doing is sin. And that's what the Bible says about this.
0: Can I ask you something? The man who should be listening is the brother. The brother is not listening right now. How do we convey the truth in a manner? Is there a way to convey this truth, God's truth to this brother? It's been between brothers now. Yeah. The blood is thicker than water. What, What is,
1: what is so difficult about this vanant is that, um, here comes the point of possible divide between these brothers, because if you pick the side of God in regard to a debate like this one, then there there comes a sword. And Jesus said, I never came to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. Brother will turn against brother, a mother against daughter, yeah. mother against daughter-in-law, Look uh, son against father. Mm. and." And this is what comes about when we are committed to the Lord Jesus. 2 yeah. Timothy says that anyone that seeks to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. persecuted yeah. And this is where you actually choose the reproach of Jesus above that long standing relationship with a brother, because the scriptures also teach us that if somebody calls themselves a brother, and then they choose to be involved in sexual misconduct and in relationships like this. We told this in Second Corinthians, we ought to have nothing to do with them. You see, if a person is saying, I'm led by the Spirit of God, and I'm led by the Bible but they do that which is absolutely wicked according to what the Spirit of God says and what the Bible says, then that individual is behaving as an unbeliever, worse than even an unbeliever. And we're commanded to actually distance ourselves from such an individual. We are to evangelize the world. There ought to be a church discipline that takes place. And I think that much of our world is very... um, Let's say it's not always ideal. Much is very broken. But if this individual is a professing believer, this matter should be taken to his congregation and to the local church. And the local church should take part in church discipline. Now, church discipline is always meant to be restorative. In other words, the sinning party is meant to be dealt with by mature believers within the congregation that come to him with the authority of the Word of God and say, you need to repent. Now, you cannot claim repentance when there's still an ongoing sin. That is not the definition of repentance at all. You know, repentance is not a 360-degree turn. You know, some people think it is. Oh, I realized I was wrong, but I turn right back to my sin and carry on in my sin. That is not repentance. Biblically. It's a
0: hardening of the heart. That's a hardening
1: isn't it? of the heart, indeed. So genuine repentance, true repentance, involves not only acknowledging wrongdoing but also turning away from that sinful behavior. Second Corinthians seven verse ten says, "For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death." What I'm saying is that what, what, from this question is that he has revealed that this brother to his brother um, or sister, yeah, um, it's anonymous, I believe. Um, yeah, it's anonymous. Yeah, the, the, what, what, he, what is revealed is that he has not got godly grief at all. And so what I would suggest when it comes to this relationship is you keep speaking the truth You want to remove yourself from it as best as you can, and you want to give Scripture. And so I would say go and make a study of the relevant passages in the Bible regarding divorce, regarding marriage, regarding fidelity, regarding repentance. Go and make a study of that. And then when you sit with your brother, you even write it out. That's always helpful. Um, Write it out, um, journal it as such, so that you can read it. And then you strive to stay out of it as far as your authority, and you want to bring God's authority. You want to say, this is what the Spirit of God says. This is what the Bible says. Yeah. Because then his rejection, even though his rejection of you will be mingled in with us, yeah. his rejection is against the authority of God's word.
0: Rocky, can I ask you with regards to this, and we're keeping this listener anonymous, but many a person who has been in a marriage and has gone through the experience says, well, I don't recognize my spouse. It's almost like... Like it's another person. Uh, uh, the Word of God says, if you divorce in an adulterous d- relationship to get married to somebody, you cause that other person to 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 uh, commit adultery as well. Uh, and we see it nowadays everywhere, all, basically all around. Hmm. We created a God that we're comfortable with that says this is okay, yep. uh, and it's not okay. It, can we warn a person like this and say, listen, th- yes, it will look like it's another person. The chances that this brother will listen to his brother's correction is is basically zero because he's already yeah. made up his mind, isn't yeah, so,
1: so part of what I am what I would suggest as well, because he's in his sin, and this is what John 3 verse 19 says, this this is the judgment, the light is coming to the world, but people have loved darkness. Yeah. The reason that he's blinded is because he loves his sin, and yeah. now... He, he, and he's pursuing death. But if you love him, you will give him the truth of God's word. And that's really and part of the, the step. But then pray for him. Yeah. So that would be my second um, suggestion is pray for him. Okay. But then also I would say let the consequence play out where you also do distance yourself from him biblically because you will take no part in his sin. Yeah. Because what you will find is next thing he's divorced, and now he wants to marry, now he wants you at the marriage, now he wants you part of the marriage, come be my best man, Come and he wants you to give him a stamp of approval. Yeah. And I've found this often even as a pastor, I'll have people come to me, and the real thing that they're after is the stamp of approval. I'll have somebody that says, no, please, would you give us marriage counseling? When actually what they really want is for me to say it's okay for you to get divorced. And the Bible doesn't say this. When you talk about adultery and about, even, and about marriage, the Bible is clear that the sanctity of marriage and the seriousness of adultery is huge. In Matthew 19, verse 6, Jesus actually affirms, he says, So they are no longer two, but are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So adultery is such a violation of the marital covenant. If this man were actually repentant, Not only would he put off that adulterous relationship, but he would accept whatever consequence comes as a result of his sin. He would recognize the bigness of his sin, and then he would also recognize, because repentance, biblical repentance, isn't just realizing the bigness of your sin. It's also recognizing the bigness of your Savior. There's a Savior that has paid a price because of my sin, and therefore I must turn wholeheartedly to my Savior who is more than enough for me. What is the deeper issue of this adultery? It's that I was seeking intimacy that I could only actually have fulfilled in Jesus. Because we have a wrong view of marriage so often. We think to ourselves, well, my wife must sexually please me. No, not at all. That was never the point of marriage in the first place. You, You were meant to be giving yourself to her as she gave herself to you. But the whole purpose of marriage has always been to be a picture of Christ and his bride. That is the whole picture of marriage since the Garden of Eden when Eve was given to Adam and he went, wow, man, and he called a woman. That's that's been the whole picture of marriage from the beginning. And divorce, as well as adultery, is a warping of that picture. And so we must repent of the fact that we have made the picture look bad. We've made this picture that God intended this marriage to look like, look bad. And then he would accept the consequences, whatever that consequence looks like. Because, of course, his wife is going to be, you know, so hurt. She's going to be feeling like like, uh, she's ugly and Uh, uh, This man's always going to be looking for other women. Rejection. There's there's rejection. There's all of these things. And he would accept the consequences of that with the heart's desire of make this right. And you think about the prodigal son for a moment. The prodigal son, when he came to true repentance, the Bible actually says he came to his senses. It's almost like there's something that was funky in his head that he couldn't properly see this until he hit rock bottom. He'd spent all of his wealth on prostitutes and on parties and on his friends. And he went his own way and he landed up in the pigsty to the point that he wanted to eat the pig's food. And he suddenly comes to his senses and notice what happens with him. He goes back to his father and he demands nothing. He says, I'm willing to just be even a slave in your house. You you don't even need to call me son. I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. That's what true repentance looks like. It looks like I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you, my wife. And I will take any consequence for the reality of how devastating this sin is in the sight of God. I agree. And that's what confession looks like. Confession is agreeing with God about what God says about you. It's agreeing with God about what God says about your sin. It's agreeing with God about what God says about a Savior. And it's agreeing with God about the fact that you need a Savior and that Jesus must be your Savior and that's what true biblical repentance looks like. So I do hope that that is helpful. It does, you know, and the other thing just to give some more comfort because I know that when these things happen and and these things are hard when it happens amongst your own family, yes. you're not the one that has brought about the destruction when you give the word of God into a situation like that. The destruction has come as a result of that man's choice to sin. He chose the way of sin, instead of the way of God. If he chose the way of God, there would have been life. But he went his own way, and that brings destruction. And that destruction plays out amongst brothers. It plays out amongst family members. And that's a destruction that you, as the Christian that brings God's word, you didn't bring that destruction. That individual that is in need of repentance, and they are in a dire situation, because if they die in their sin, I'll say if they die in their sin without true repentance to Jesus, it shows that they were never saved in the first place. It shows that they died without God. And so that individual is hanging in a, in a, in a tremendously difficult place. place. And so if you love him, you will tell him the truth. You will pray for him and you will not compromise. And I think that that's the next thing because Galatians tells us that those that are mature must restore those that have sinned. I think it's Galatians six, but it is in Galatians. I know that. Um, And why is that? It's because we need to realize that when we're dealing with loved ones or even within a church situation with those that have sinned in ways, there's temptation for us to sin as well. And that's where you need to watch your own step with the Lord. When you realize just how thin the ice is, don't go playing around on the thin ice And, and recognize your propensity within your heart, apart from grace, to also sin. And that's a humble attitude then with which you're able to approach those in your family. And there may be various listeners <clears throat> with situations like this where they've got family members that are living in sin. We want to be a people that stick to what the Bible teaches, and if we receive a, a hatred from those that will not yield to the Word of God, we then actually begin to even rejoice because we have accepted the reproach of Christ instead of the fleeting riches and the fleeting pleasures of this world. So and my heart does really go out to this listener um, i know that these are not defi- not easy things but yeah. stand for jesus continue to honor the Lord and, and then also truth. depend on the Holy Spirit to give you the wisdom that you need in this situation.
0: Thank you very much, Anonymous. And uh, we'll keep you in our prayers on this side. Thank you so much for taking part in the program. Got a question from uh, Sanet all the way from, what is it, Zimbabwe, uh, and says, uh, love your program. It's, it's very hot here in Kaufe in Zimbabwe, bless your heart, uh, she used to live in Livingston, and now uh, sending a question. Since I've got a question, ek het een vraag oor gebed uh, uit die Bijbelheid, en staan voordierend, um, laat ek net geëso zien, daar is woord, daar word door verskeie mense, in sluitende leraars gesê, as jy jou versoek jou gebed, byvoorbeeld vir geneesing, uh, na God gebring het, vir met smeking en geloof, en aan sy voete neergeleid, dat jy nie weer daarvoor moet But In essence, Rocky, if we presented our prayers and our requests to God, and especially when it comes to healing, um, praying for somebody who is who's desperately ill, uh, we, we shouldn't pray for it anymore. Can you give me scriptures, um, scripturally based scriptures, uh, that says that we should do this or should not do this. Uh, Baie sien vir julle program vir al van ons mense hier nie ver uitdoeken van die aarde. Rocky, what are we on yeah, to I, I
1: would, I would say that um, you know, we want to be careful to do what the Bible says, not what any, um, we want to always test what, even what preachers say. what Discern. you know. You think about, and that's the reason that we have this program called look and we've often referenced um, Acts chapter seventeen with the Bereans. They searched the scriptures diligently to see if these things were so. They were noble-minded in that sense because they didn't even take Paul's word. They went and they searched the scriptures. And we would encourage our listeners to do the same with Veinant and myself. Whenever we speak about these things, go and, go and check it out in the Don't Bible. Do you do likewise. Um, you know, because because the scriptures teach us various uh, marvelous truths. And a question like this, you know, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16 to 18 comes to mind, where Paul says, Rejoice always pray without ceasing now that's god's command you you're meant to never stop praying yeah basically your life as a christian ought to look like and linking this again with Tays' question earlier on part of our sanctification is that we should more and more be a praying people because we're more and more a holy people you cannot have holiness without prayer and you cannot have prayer without holiness and so we ought to be in constant communion with god and let me tell you when you're in constant communion with god then you're not going to be sinning You know, you're not going to be actually doing what this man in the last question did of cheating on his wife with some floozy because you're going to be praying to God in your mind and in your heart. And you're going to be walking in communion with God. And so it says, pray without ceasing in everything. Give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so as a as a linking that to the prayer for a a family member that is sick, you, you ought to pray without ceasing. You know, there's. You think of even David when God had told him that the first child from Bathsheba, which was the child of immorality, uh, was going to die. He he fasted and he prayed until that moment that the child died. And then yeah. he got up and he washed yeah. his face and he went, and, and that's a whole other subject. But yeah. But we see him praying still because as long as there was breath, there was now this potential for for the healing to come about. And so we are to keep on praying. And that suggests even the surrender also of our concerns to God and then trusting in him. You know, looking to the Lord to work and and doing that all the time. But then this idea of laying the requests at God's feet also does have a biblical, um, let's say, a biblical precedent. If you look at Philippians 4, verse 6 to 7, it says this, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, and again, what do you see as a common thread between what we read um, just a little moment ago, and what we've just read now, uh, in First Thessalonians 5, verse 16 to 18, and now Philippians 4, verse 6 to 7, is you see thanksgiving is a part of this and that 's a real critical element, even when it comes to the prayer of a of a family member that is suffering in various ways, is find ways and means of thanking the Lord even in that situation, because no situation on earth, no matter how dire is as bad as what we actually deserve in our sin. Everything that we've received is very much of grace, but listen to what it says there in Philippians 4, verse 6 onward. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what I would say is pray until you have that peace. Um, that is that is the best way to answer a question like this, pray until you have that peace, because God has promised that peace
0: Right, Sanet, I hope that's an answer for you, ek uh, vertrou dis die antwoord vir jou, maak nie saak wat leraars en annemese om jou sê nie, so spreek die woord van die heren, en miskien moet jy die skrifte onderzoek, anlinge 1711, kyk of jy saamsteem doen jou eie studie, en die Heilige Geest sal vir jou antwoord daaroor